Psalm 2, beginning in verse 1, Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. But look at verse 4. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. We usually don't associate laughter with God's Word, right? But folks, it's there. There are several references to laughter in the Bible. Probably the one we think of, maybe you do, maybe you don't, most often is about Sarah laughing when God said she was going to have a child in her old age. Well, that's one instance of laughter. But there's good cheer and there's laughter of all kinds if you just study the Word of God. In fact, you could take a concordance and look up the word laugh or laughter, and you can find several references to laughter in the Bible. Now, it's not recorded in Scripture that Jesus ever laughed, but who's to say he didn't? Just because it's not recorded does not mean that he never laughed. I think of Jesus attending the wedding at Cana of Galilee, and, you know, that's a happy occasion. And I can't imagine the Lord going to a wedding and looking like and acting like some folks do on a Sunday morning, you know, with a frown on his face and, you know, I'm here, but I don't really want to be. I can't imagine him doing that. I know last Sunday morning, I think it was last Sunday morning in Sunday school class or some other time, Brother Truman mentioned that he pastored a man who said that Christians ought never to show joy and ought never be happy. I can't imagine that. You know, if you're a child of God, regardless of how bad this world gets, folks, we have a reason to have joy. And we can be happy and we can go through this life. You know, I passed a woman one day. She had a bumper sticker on her car, driving a big black car, and she had a bumper sticker that said something, either honk or wave or something, if you love the Lord. But when I went by her, I looked over at her, and she had the biggest old frown, I mean, the scowl on her face. And I thought, well, why are you having a bumper sticker like that? That's not a good ad for a child of God. And for us to especially come to church with a frown on our faces and, and be sort of mumbly and grumbly, that's not a good thing either. In Nehemiah, the eighth chapter, you know, they're building, rebuilding the walls of the city of Jerusalem. And what did Nehemiah encourage those who were building the wall to do in verse 10? Now, we're going to talk in a moment about their enemies causing them some problems. But Nehemiah said, neither be ye sorry, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Our strength is the joy of the Lord. That's one of the things that keeps us going. Remember Ecclesiastes, we preached through the book of Ecclesiastes not very long ago. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 verse 4 says there is a time to weep and a time to laugh. There's a time to mourn and there's a time to dance. And so God's word just says there's a time to be happy, there's a time to be sad. And we should know when that time is. There's different kinds of laughter and for all reasons. There's the innocent laughter of children. I don't think anything is purer than the innocent laughter of children. I've seen videos of little babies laughing and they just get me laughing. Just watch a little baby laugh. You know, that's, sometimes they just laugh all over themselves. You know what I mean? And it's a beautiful sight to see. There's the wholesome laughter of pure joy. I've seen people, you know, several reactions when somebody's just filled with joy. Some folks shed tears and sometimes it's tears of joy and it's tears of laughter. And so there's all kinds of laughter. There's good laughter and there's bad laughter. Remember what Ecclesiastes 7, 6 says about the laughter of the wicked? 
For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fool. This also is vanity. And what an apt description that is of the laughter of a fool. It makes a whole lot of noise, but it doesn't last very long. In Proverbs chapter 1, verses 24 through 26, listen to what God said to those who have rejected him, because I have called and ye refused. I have stretched out my hand and no man regarded, but ye have said it not all my counsel and would none of my reproof. I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your fear cometh. Do you think sometimes God looks at what's happening in our nation and he just, not, not a laughter of derision so much as just a laughter that says, I told you, I told you, the nation that will follow me, I'll bless you, but the nation that doesn't follow me, you're not going to be blessed. To saved sinners, and by the way, that's what we are. And some saved sinners are more sinners than others, I guess. But to save sinners in James chapter 4, the Lord says through James, let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. Sometimes we need to quit laughing. You know, to think about the future, the eternity of somebody that doesn't know Christ as Savior, that's not a time to laugh. That's a time to mourn. If we look at our own lives and we find that I'm not serving the Lord, I'm out of fellowship with him, I'm not following him, James says, quit your laughing. Get to mourning. And by the way, that word mourning has the idea of a funeral type of grief. In 2 Chronicles chapter 30, King Hezekiah called for the whole nation to repent and to be revived before God. And he sent messengers out. The scripture calls them posts there. And he sent messengers out into all the land to tell the people it's time to repent. It's time to be revived. And the scripture says they laughed the messengers to scorn. Nehemiah mentioned this a moment ago. They're building or rebuilding the walls of the city of Jerusalem. And what are their enemies doing? Their enemies are mocking them to scorn. Mark chapter 5, verses 38 through 40. Jesus goes to Jairus' house. His daughter has died. And Jesus says to those people who are gathered about, don't sorrow. The maid is not dead. She's merely sleeping. And the scripture says they even laughed Jesus to scorn. So there's good laughter and bad laughter in the 17th chapter of the book of Acts after Paul spoke on Mars Hill. Some mocked him and some said we'll hear you again because he talked about the resurrection of the dead. There's the laughter of the world. Americans today are laughing. They're trying to laugh themselves to death. They're trying to forget their trials. They're trying to forget their tribulations. You know who some of the highest paid entertainers are today? They're the comedians, the funny boys, and people want to hear them. We live in a world that is trying to laugh off its sin and trying to laugh off its shame. We live in a world that is trying to laugh off its guilt and its heartache and its boredom. But you don't laugh that away. You don't laugh that off. And then there's laughter of the believer. You know, we may weep right now sometimes. We may even have sorrow that causes us to weep, uh, maybe the loss of a loved one or illness or something like that. But one of these days, folks, we're going to laugh because we are going to see the triumph of the cause of the Lord Jesus Christ and we're going to see truth vindicated. You know, we preach the truth today. We say to people, this is what the word of God says. And they say, I don't want to believe that. Well, one of these days, they're going to find out we're telling the truth. When we stand in pulpits, when we witness to people, they're going to find out we are speaking the truth. Listen to Psalm 
52, the first seven verses, it was written to evil people. It was written to lost sinners. Why boastest thou self in mischief, O mighty man? The goodness of God endureth continually. Thy tongue deviseth mischiefs like a sharp razor working deceitfully. Thou lovest evil more than good and lying rather than to speak righteousness, Selah. Thou lovest all devouring words, O thou deceitful tongue. God shall likewise destroy thee forever. He shall take thee away and pluck thee out of thy dwelling place and root thee out of the land of the living, Selah. The righteous also shall see and fear and shall laugh at him. Lo, this is the man that made not God his strength, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and strengthened himself in his wickedness. We may be laughed at now, but one of these days we're going to see all of those who had rejected God. And we're going to say, I don't know what we'll say, something like what it says here. They will say, this man didn't make God his strength. These people boasted in and trusted in their riches or their position or who or what they were. And now look at them having rejected God and rejected Christ. In Luke chapter 6 and verse 21, Jesus said, Blessed are ye that weep now, for ye shall laugh. And then he turned right around in verse 25 and he says, Woe to you that laugh now, for ye shall mourn and weep. Folks, laughter is coming to the child of God. So there's the laughter of the believer and the last life will be ours as we see God's program and God's plan brought upon this earth. And that brings us to the laughter of the Almighty. That's what verse 4 talks about here in this second psalm. The laughter of the Almighty. Again, speaking of the wicked. The 37th Psalm in verses 12 and 13. The wicked plotteth against the just and gnasheth upon him with his teeth. The Lord shall laugh at him, for he seeth that his day is coming or cometh. God knows what the future holds. God knows and has warned people what the future holds for those who reject Christ. God has warned us and told us to warn others in his word. In the 59th Psalm, David is praying for deliverance from the wicked and says in verse 8, But thou, O Lord, shall laugh at them. Thou shalt have all the heathen in derision. God's going to laugh one of these days. That's what the fourth verse of the second psalm says. You know, back in the 1960s, some of you may remember that. I guess most of us in here are old enough to remember that this morning, aren't we? Back in the 1960s, Soviet Premier Khrushchev came to America. And while he was here in America, and I want to, I'm just going to add this. This is not a part of, of what I'm trying to tell you this morning, but just remember what Khrushchev said in the 1960s to the Americans, one day you will wake up and you will be a communist nation. It will just happen to you. Folks, better open their eyes, I'm telling you. Anyway, Khrushchev was here. And he referred to the old adage, he who laughs last, laughs best. Well, apparently Khrushchev forgot who has the last laugh, right? Because it wasn't Khrushchev. Khrushchev's gone. And listen, folks, it's not going to be communism that has the last laugh. It's not going to be socialism that has the last laugh. It's not even going to be capitalism that has the last laugh. God will have the last laugh. That's what the Word of God says. And when we belong to Him and we're on His side, we've got on the side of the winning cause. Okay? I saw this the other day, heard this, 
And I don't know who wrote it, but the poet said this, O changeless sea, thy message and changing spray cast, within God's plan of progress it matters not at last, how wide the shores of evil, how strong the reach of sin. The wave may be defeated, but the tide is sure to win. Okay? The tide's going to win, folks. The tide's coming in. You can't stop the tide. And the tide is going to win. And I ask you, are you a part of that tide? Now, I want to mention something that's unpleasant for some people. But down in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, there's a school called the University of Alabama. And do you know what their football team's name is? The Crimson Tide. And there are folks that love them because they win a lot. And there are folks that hate them because they win a lot. Well, let me tell you, I am a fan of the Crimson Tide. Not the one in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, but the one that started at Calvary. When the blood of Jesus Christ was shed and the crimson tide flowed for you and for me. The tide is going to win. The crimson tide of Jesus Christ is going to win. What happens to the wave is incidental. Waves come in and waves go out. Waves come in and waves go out. It's the tide that matters, folks. And you know what the ebb of the tide is called or the lowest ebb of the tide? It's the turn of the tide. When it's at its lowest, guess what? That tells you the tide's fixing to come back in. We're seeing some low ebbs today. We who are God's people are living in some pretty low tides right now. If you just look at the world about us, if you just look at our nation, but sometimes God will bring us to a time like that. God will send us through, allow us to go through a time like that, but he's getting ready to send in the tide. Have you ever heard the saying, the darkest hour is just before dawn? And the ebb of the tide is the turn of the tide. You may be going through a time of low ebb right now as a child of God. You may be going through some difficulty right now as a child of God. But just hang on because God's going to send in the tide. We have to remember Romans 8.28. All things. You know it didn't say some things. And in fact Paul said we know. He didn't say we hope. He didn't say maybe. He said all things work together for good to them who love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. I shared with the Sunday school class something that I heard in listening to a sermon just yesterday. He said a test of your spiritual progress is this, when you can see the hand of God in the hand of man. When man moves and you don't understand it, but you can see the hand of God moving in that, that shows you you're making some spiritual progress in your life. If you're discouraged today, feel like you've been ineffective, feel like your wave has sort of played out, though your wave may fail, God's tide will never fail. You know, we need to keep in mind as believers that God has the last laugh. God has the last laugh. I don't know why I thought of this, but we studied just recently in Acts chapter 4. And what happened in Acts chapter 4? Well, if you look over to Acts chapter 4, the church there in Jerusalem is undergoing some persecution. And Peter and John and some of those have been arrested. They've been told not to speak in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ ever again. And so in Acts chapter 4, they go back to the church and they report what has happened to the church. 
And they quote, I'm sure that, well, they didn't quote, but I'm sure they had it in their minds when they said what they did in Acts chapter 4. But it's almost a quote of Psalm 119, 49. Lord, remember your word to your servants in which you caused them to trust. Lord, you made some promises and we trust you. We are depending upon you. They did quote Psalm, this is why we know David wrote Psalm 2, by the way. They did quote Psalm 2 in Acts chapter 4, look at verse 25 in Acts chapter 4. Who by the mouth of thy servant David has said, why did the heathen rage and the people imagine vain things? The kings of the earth stood up and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. You know what they're saying? They said, Lord, we believe what you said in that second Psalm. Lord, we believe that you're going to have the last life. And we're counting on you. We are depending upon you. And then in verse 29, look at what they do. And now, Lord, behold their threatenings and grant unto thy servants that with all boldness they may speak thy word. You know what they said? Lord, the thing that got us in trouble our boldness to speak of Jesus, we want more of it. Now, I don't know what you and I would say today. I know what many preachers might say today. They might pray this way, Lord, help me to be a little more diplomatic. Lord, maybe I said things the wrong way. Uh, Lord, maybe I just rub people the wrong way. So just help me to be a little more pleasing and more of a diplomat than a messenger. But these... And that church at Jerusalem said, Lord, yes, it's boldness that got us here, but we want more boldness because we want to stand boldly for you. But a lot of preachers aren't doing that today, folks. We find boldness three times in that fourth chapter of Acts. You realize that you look at verse 13, there's the boldness that's seen by the world. They boldly spoke about Jesus. In verse 29, there's the boldness that we just read that was sought by the church. And then in verse 31, there's the boldness, if you look at it, that was supplied by the Spirit. Look at it. It says, when they had prayed, the place was shaken. Now, I would love to have a prayer meeting that was so powerful and that was so strong that it just shook this whole building. And it just shook every person in this building. Why can't we have prayer meetings like that today? Because we're not praying for the boldness that they prayed for. We want to be diplomats today. God's people do. We want to get along with people today and that's not what they sought to do. It said the place was shaken where they were assembled together and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they spake the word of God with boldness. We just talked about deacons in Sunday school this morning. Boy, I had a good time in Sunday school talking about deacons. I like to talk about deacons. I like to talk about preachers. They talked about how Stephen... And if ever there was a deacon that was filled with the Holy Spirit, folks, Stephen was. Here was a preaching deacon. You read the seventh chapter of Acts and read that sermon he preached in the seventh chapter of Acts. But he had such boldness and he was filled, he was controlled by the Holy Spirit. And that's the only way to get things done for the Lord is to be filled with the Holy Spirit boldness as he directs and, and he controls our lives. We're gonna look very quickly that's a long introduction, I know. Now we're going to have a very short message. You say amen to that, brother. <laughs> we're going to have a very short message looking at these first four verses of this second psalm. First of all, we see the rebellion of man back over in the first three verses. Because look at what he says first. 
he asked a question. Why did the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? Now the heathen talked about pagans, talked about the nations. It talked about what they would call barbarians. It was anybody that was a non-Jew. If you were not a Jew, you were considered a pagan. You were considered a heathen. And the question is, why do they rage? Now this idea of the rage talks about a, a rising up. It talks about a tossing. I think again of the waves of the ocean, especially there's a place out on the west coast near Monterey where two ocean currents come together and they're just constantly churning and tossing and, and it's called, the, I think, the restless sea. And I think about that when I think about the nations enraging, just boiling up, just tossing to and fro. The psalmist sees nations, and we're seeing it today, in a violent commotion, in a violent agitation. They're engaged in a purpose, and we're going to name that purpose in just a moment, but they're involved in it, and it's a picture of a mob in a tumultuous assembly just coming together. Have you ever watched mobs work? Have you ever watched people stir up mobs? I have seen it, and you can get people stirred up. Remember when... Jesus entered the city of Jerusalem, what did they do? I mean, they were laying palm branches down, they were Hosanna, he that cometh in the name of the Lord. But after the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and all of these had Jesus arrested and had put him on trial and they had him before Pilate and Pilate says, what do I need to do with Jesus? They stirred up the mob. And what did the mob say? Crucify him! And Pilate said, I've got two here, Jesus and Barabbas. And on this day, I normally let one of them go. Who do you want to be allowed to be released? And what was Barabbas? He was an insurrectionist. He was a thief. He was a murderer. And because people were stirred up in a mob capacity, instead of saying, release Jesus, they shouted, release Barabbas. We want you to set a murderer free. By the way, do you realize that the the blood of Jesus has set a lot of murderers and insurrectionists and disobedient folks free, okay? But he says, let a murderer go free. Let this rebel go free and crucify Jesus. That's mob mentality, and that's what they did on that day. Less than a week after they had been crying, hail him, they were crying, nail him. Just nail him to the cross. That's mob mentality. And that's what the psalmist is asking. Why is this mob mentality going on among people? Look at our world today, folks. It's mob mentality. And then it asks, why? I'm going to back up a moment. We'll come back to that. There are a lot of things that are being promoted, especially among our young people in this world today that people know are not right, that people know are perverse and perversions and abominations before God and they promote it and allow it to be promoted among young people especially with almost a mob mentality. Amen. Hey, you want to be cool? You get involved in this sin. You get involved in this sin and they will stir young people up to accept these things. Well, I don't see anything wrong with perversion, well, there is something wrong with it, and God's word says there's something wrong with it. Now, he says, why do they imagine a vain thing? Now, this is not people sitting around saying, let's figure out vain means useless, okay? It's not people sitting around saying, well, let's see what we can imagine to do that'll be totally useless. 
That's not what it's talking about. When he says, why do the people imagine a vain thing? What he's asking is, why do they sit around contemplating something that when they get engaged in it, they're going to find out it's worthless? Okay? We have a world that worships fame and, and fortune and money and popularity and all of those things. But you know what happens? They end at death. Just this past week, and I didn't hear about it till a day or two later, but Lisa Marie Presley died. Well, who's that? That's Elvis's daughter, right? Well, whatever fame she had that she got from her daddy, is, it's over. And given time, she will be remembered no more. Somebody will ask a young person, who was that? And I say, I don't know. See, you and I remember because we grew up during that time when that fame was going on, but it will end. To strive for those things is a vain thing. In fact, anything that you can strive for on this earth is a vain thing. Lay not up treasures on earth where moth and rust doth corrupt and where thieves break in and steal. But we'll lay up treasures where? Lay up treasures in heaven where moth and rust don't corrupt and where thieves don't break in and steal. That's what we ought to be striving for as God's people today. What's the vain thing that they're imagining? What's the vain thing that they're engaged in? And we'll say more about it in just a moment, but I'm going to mention it now. It is rebellion against God. That's vanity, folks. Well, I'm just going to go up against God. You'll lose. Okay, you'll lose every time you don't go up against God. That is a vain thing. And if ever believers and churches were beset by the powers of darkness, folks, it is today. Lord's churches went through the dark ages. And I think we're entering into some dark ages right now. If ever the heathen raged and people imagined a vain thing, it's right now, it's today. In Luke 17, we're given some of the signs of the coming of the Lord Jesus. We're told how to know that we're in the season of his coming. And Luke 17, beginning in verse 26, says this, And as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be also in the days of the Son of Man. They did eat, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. And then it says, Likewise, also as it was in the days of Lot, they did eat, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they builded. But the same day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even thus shall it be in the day when a son of man is revealed. One of the signs of the last days is worldliness. Well, what is worldliness? And why do I say that? What does it say? As it was in the days of Noah. As it was in the days of Lot. What were people doing? Eating. Drinking. Marrying. Giving in marriage. Planting. Building, you know what that is? That's life as usual. There's nothing wrong with these things if you keep them in the right place, if you honor God in them. But when those things become the main things of the life, especially of a child of God, and that's what most people are living for today, even some who are saved, that's worldliness. That's being taken up with the spirit of this age. Again, I'll say there's nothing wrong with those things. It's just that they were living life as usual. Listen to people talk out in the world. 90%, I'd say, of the things they talk about are those things. Eating, drinking, marrying, giving in marriage, planning, building. That's just what the world talks about. That's their lives. By the way, listen to the average church member 
on a Sunday morning and I'm going to meddle, especially during football season. What we talk about? The game. The game. The game. Right? I've heard it. Especially during the college football season. Games are played on Saturday. People come in on Sunday morning. They talk about their favorite team and what they did or didn't do. That's the lives of many of God's people. And for many saved and unsaved alike, that's the way they live. And when a person is so occupied with the things of this age, to the neglect of the things of God and to the neglect of the Word of God, it's worldly. It's worldliness. They call this the day of secularism. Now, you know what secularism is? It's a replacement for the word worldliness. See, the preachers figured out that they could use the word secularism and nobody knew what that meant. And so they could get themselves off the hook by talking about the day of secularism and preaching against it and everybody would say amen to it and nobody would know that the preacher was talking about them. Notice, it doesn't say these folks were committing murder. It doesn't say they were committing adultery. It just says they were doing things, like I said before, they were just living life as usual. And what are we doing today? Living life as usual. Then in verse 37, here's the next one, corruption, because they asked, Lord, where's all this going to be? And Jesus said, wheresoever the body is, thither will the eagles be gathered together. And that word eagle really refers to a vulture. Eagles don't do like vultures do, okay? So it refers to a vulture. Vance Havner said this, this world has gotten so rotten that every once in a while that God will just have to send the vultures of judgment upon the world. You think about Noah's day. What was the imagination of the heart of man? To do evil continually. You think about God's judgment that he sent and flooded the world. You think about Sodom and Gomorrah Sodom was so vile and so corrupt and such a festering sore that God cauterized it. God burned it out. He sent fire and brimstone down from heaven. One of these days, God may send fire and brimstone on the United States of America. Amen. What about the fall of Jerusalem? God's people had started trying to worship God and idols at the same time. And so God sent his judgment and the Babylonians took them all captive. And the world is so corrupt today, folks. And this is another Vance Havner illustration. I like this one. The world is so corrupt today, if it wasn't for the people of God, the salt of the earth, you might as well try to dam up Niagara Falls with toothpicks as to stop the tide of evil and the tide of sin that's coming in this world. <laughs> Revelation 19, 17 God's going to call the vultures one of these days. Listen to it. And I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the fowls that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather yourselves together unto the supper of the great God. So corruption. Worldliness, corruption. And here's another one. Faithlessness. Sign of the time of the coming of Christ. Faithlessness. Luke chapter 18, verse 8. Jesus asked, Nevertheless, when the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Charles Spurgeon said, faith, faithfulness, dependence upon God and dedication to God will be so rare upon the earth in the day that Jesus comes, it'll be as if there were none. Somebody else said, true faithfulness will be as rare as when only eight people were saved in the ark and only four out of the city of Sodom. We see that today. 
look around you. I know we got some folks sick, we got some folks out of town, but where are the rest of them? And we got some working, I realize that. But where are the rest of them? Faithlessness, a sign of the coming of Christ. And here's one more, scoffers. People are imagining a vain thing today, scoffers. There are scoffers today who say Jesus isn't coming and there aren't any signs. Listen, every time you hear somebody say there aren't any signs of the coming of Christ, you've just seen one because that person's a sign. Amen. Listen to what it says in 2 Peter chapter 3. Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Nothing's changed, and Jesus isn't coming back. Don't be surprised in these last days if you aren't the target of the powers of darkness. Folks, we have seen it happen to our people in this church. Many different things that have happened. And the devil today is out to disable the body, to deceive the mind, and to discourage the spirit. He tells sinners that they're saved, and he tells the saved that they're lost. And he has people in this giant confusion. And there seems to be, I like this, somebody pointed out, seems to be an unexplainable tiredness. Aren't you tired today? Well, I didn't see anybody yawn, so you're not that tired, okay? But there's a tiredness today. Watch people when they come back tonight. Watch people Wednesday night. People come in from work, they come to church, and they're just tired. And there's unexplainable tiredness that has come over people. And listen, when you try to read the Bible we're going through, read the Bible in a year. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands to see how many are doing it. But we're going through that. And when you try to read the Bible, it's like the devil pulls a shade down over your eyes. You read it and you don't know what you read, so you have to go back and read it again. And again. And again. And maybe finally you get it. You know what? You don't have that problem with television, do you? We stay awake and we see what we see. In Luke 18, the Lord told about the unfortunate widow who came to the unjust judge. She said, avenge me of my adversaries. That word avenge really has the idea of vindicate. And just like this widow, we today as God's people are surrounded by worldliness and corruption and faithlessness and scoffing and scoffers. We're waiting on the Lord to come back and we're saying to him, Lord, come back and avenge us. Lord, come back and vindicate us. Show the world that this message that had been preached from your pulpit, the pulpits of your churches, show the world that this message is the truth. They don't want to believe. They don't want to listen. Lord, you come back and show them because they won't hear us. But not only are the people raging and imagining a vain thing, there's a worldwide conspiracy against God and godliness today. Verses 2 and 3, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. If ever the kings of the earth stood up and the rulers were gathered against the Lord Jesus Christ, folks, it's today. Kings talks about governmental powers that be. In that day it was kings, it was monarchs. Rulers talked about what I call the lesser class of rulers. You know, not just monarchs, but presidents and prime ministers and houses of government, Congress and, and Senate and things like that. He says they have set themselves against the Lord. That means they've taken their stand. They're in battle array. We're going to fight against God. I would love to hear some of the discussions that go on 
prior to certain laws that get passed in our land. I don't know if anybody up there would say, but this isn't what the Bible says. But I can imagine a lot of folks saying, I don't care what the Bible says. This is what we're going to do. I don't care what God says. This is what we are going to do. We have set ourselves that this is the way we are going to go. They take counsel. They consult. It's a picture, an oriental picture of lying on a couch and consulting with someone. You know, the orientals didn't always stand. They didn't sit in chairs. They would have these couches that they would lie on and discuss. And it's that picture of lying down in comfort and consulting or debating, deliberating a matter. And so that makes it a deliberate decision that the kings of the earth, the rulers of the earth, premeditatedly have said our purpose is to oppose God and to oppose the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 3 gives us their plan. Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. You know what that is? That's the desire of mankind to not be ruled over by God. I don't want God's bands. I don't want God's cords. I know what the Bible says, but I. And then they're going to tell you what they're going to do, what they think, what they want. See, it's a picture here of, it's taken from fastening a yoke on oxen. The bands and the cords, we might call them reins maybe today, were used in the plowing and you'd direct the ox in which way he needed to go or how you wanted him to go. And so it is in, indicative of subordination to the authority of God. And so governments, rulers, people in general are saying, and some of God's people are saying, I'm not going to be ruled over by God. Cords is a stronger word. And it has the idea of what is twisted or interlaced. It's the way you make, you know, a threefold cord or a rope. It's strong and that's how you make it. And when it says, let us cast away their bands and let us cast away their cords, that phrase cast away expresses the idea that we can do this without any problem. We can just throw God's rule away. We can just cast off God's control and we can live like we want to live. Listen, folks, it is Satan who is the God of this world who is behind these kings and these rulers. And I would suggest to you, and I've wrote this down specifically so I can get it right when I say it, I would suggest to you that Satan is in control of the heads of just about every government today. Amen. That's who's leading. And you know what he's doing? He is preparing these heads of governments and he is preparing this world to accept his superman, the Antichrist. Amen. The world can't see it. And we're praying and saying, Lord, vindicate us for preaching this and for telling them this. They will not listen. Our world today does not want God and his standards. See, you and I, I don't know what we've done to ourselves, and I'm just as guilty as anybody. We sort of get this idea that, well, most people really want God's standards in this world. You'd be surprised. I think it's getting down to the point where only the people of God are really wanting, and not all of them, are really wanting God's control and God's standards in this world. And Paul describes this time in 2 Thessalonians. Listen to verse 6 through 10. And now ye know what withholdeth that he might be revealed in his time. There are two things that are holding back the flood of evil. 
There's a what and a who that's holding back the flood of evil upon this world. He said, for the mystery of iniquity doth already work. Only he who now letteth will let till he be taken out of the way. You know what the who and what are? I believe the what is the Lord's churches. And the who is the Holy Spirit. And one of these days, Jesus is going to come in the clouds and he's going to take us out of here. And then the Holy Spirit, however he's going to do it, God's got this figured out, I don't, okay? He's going to pull back his restraints and mankind is going to have what he has always wanted. He is going to have Satan for his God and it will be, as one preacher said, hell on earth in that day. Verse 8, and then shall that wicked be revealed whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming, even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders and with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish because they receive not the love of the truth that they might be saved. Satan's going to run things for about seven years, folks. And God's going to, only because God lets him, by the way, for about seven years upon this earth. Ah, but verse 4. Woo, I'm glad to get out of that, okay? Because verse 4, I'm sorry. Woo, I'm glad to get out of that. <laughs> Thought I'd do that for him. I'm glad to get out of that because listen to what verse 4 says. Because some may be asking, why doesn't God do something today, right? Remember Mary and Martha after Lazarus died, they said, Lord, if you'd have been here. Jesus deliberately delayed two days before going. And they said, Lord, if you'd have been here, you could have done something. And what are so many of us saying today? Lord, why don't you do something? <laughs> I heard one preacher say this. He says, I never can figure out why God doesn't act when I want him to. Well, it's because God's on his timeline and we're on our timeline, all right? But we're saying, Lord, why don't you do something? Well, God is faithful, but sometimes he says, wait. And the hardest thing in the world to do, folks, is wait. I know it. And there are so many things that are happening today and, and we don't understand. And so we start fussing, Lord, why don't you work when I want you to work? God started his plan of redemption, folks, and he is going to avenge us one of these days. He is going to show that, yes, what we speak is the truth. And we can be assured that the devil is not going to win because Jesus Christ is going to come back and he is going to finish things for good. Verse 4 says, He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. The word laugh here, I love this word. It says to go calmly on in the execution of one's purposes. Now think about that. Here's the whole world saying we're going to rebel against God. We're going to make Satan our God. And God sitting in heaven saying, no you're not. I have a purpose. And I have a plan. And I'm going to carry out that plan. See, God's just going to smile at their attempts. God is not walking around heaven saying, oh my goodness, what do I need to do? Everybody on earth is turning against me. Men are not listening to me. What, 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 what can I do now? Somebody help me. Somebody give me a plan. No, he laughs. You know why? Look what he's doing. He's sitting. God is sitting in the heavens. His throne is not an earthly throne. All of these rulers have just an earthly throne. God has a heavenly throne. And God's sitting there on his heavenly throne and he's just smiling 
about all of this that's taking place. Derision talked about to mock or deride. God will carry forth his plans in spite of all of the attempts of man and in spite of all of the attempts of Satan to derail those plans. God sits undisturbed in heaven. God sits unmoved in heaven. Even while men rage against him and raise their fists in defiance to God, God sits in heaven. And I love it. God smiles. God just laughs. Your attempts are so futile and they are not going to prevail. See, knowing that ought to give us a strength and ought to give us a boldness. I'm on the winning side. See, up until this year, I could figure out if I rooted for the University of Alabama, the tide was going to win. <laughs> they didn't do so well this year. But there's a tide I can root for that I know is going to win. And it is a crimson tide. So listen to Paul's instructions in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, beginning in verse 7. And to you who are troubled, are you troubled today? Are you troubled in this age that we live in? What does he say? And to you who are troubled, rest with us. Rest with us. Now, rest doesn't mean sit down and do nothing, okay? It means you can relax. Quit being troubled. Quit being worried. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence, or that literally has the idea of out and away from, the presence of the Lord and out and away from the glory of his power when he shall come to be glorified in his saints and to be admired in all them that believe because our testimony among you was believed in that day. Quit being filled with anxiety, child of God. You know, I, I'm not a great big football fan. You know, people, there'll be a game, some team will win by a point or two, and they say, boy, it was a good game. No, a good game is when my team wins about, about 30 or 40 points. That's a good game. You know. Well, guess what? Our team's going to win by a bigger margin than that because we're on the winning team. Well, in conclusion, things sure do seem out of kilter today, don't they? But we need to know our Bibles. And we need to look at what's going on and see it through God's eyes. If you look through the eyes of man, oh, you'll be filled with anxiety. You'll be nervous. You'll be afraid. You won't be resting. But if you'll see it through God's eyes, Jesus is going to come back. And when he comes back, he's going to straighten it all out. Listen to verse 5. Then, let's read verse 4 and then verse 5. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath and vex them with his sore displeasure. A lost man said to a preacher one day, this preacher had been witnessing to him, telling him he'd been praying for him. And this lost man said to this preacher, well, Jesus hadn't come back yet. And the preacher said to that lost man, and for your sake, I'm glad he hadn't. God's mercy. God's not willing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance. Why hasn't Jesus, it's been 2,000 years, thereabouts. Why hasn't Jesus come back yet? Folks, it is the mercy of God. God does not want people to go to hell. People say, well, I, I can't worship a God that sends men to hell. God doesn't send men to hell. Men choose to go to hell. Amen. They're already condemned, the word of God says. 
And God has provided a way to escape that condemnation and that is through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so men just reject that, that escape and die lost and are separated from God for eternity. But that's not God's desire. In fact, the scripture says it's his heart's desire that all should come to repentance and a knowledge of the truth. We've got to wait for Jesus to come. I mean, what else can you do, right? Jesus is coming. Will he come in my lifetime? I don't know. But we're told to watch and we're told to wait. Well, why don't we watch? By the way, wait does not mean to sit down and do nothing. Have you ever had a waiter that did that? I think I've had some that did that, but uh, wait doesn't mean sit down and do nothing. The idea of wait is wait with this earnest expectation. Jesus could come back today before we ever get a chance to have business meeting tonight. And so while we're waiting, okay, and while we're watching with earnest expectation, you know, there's one more thing that he told us to do. We're to be working for him. Watch, wait, and work. Now that work includes witness. Watch, wait, work, and witness. Because if we have the heart and the mind of God, and I hope nobody here has a worst enemy, okay? <laughs> but if we have the heart and mind of God, we would not want our worst enemy to endure an eternity in hell. We have no concept of what hell is going to be like. We can read Luke 17, but I still don't think we get it, how terrible hell is going to be, and it is eternal. There should be no one that we want to see die and go to hell.